The DIA is the only national professional body that champions the value of all design and the impact of our designers. Its purpose is to help designers prosper by providing knowledge, thought leadership, access and inclusivity. Head to design.org.au for more information about becoming a member of the DIA. The DIA acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, giving respect to Elders past, present and future as the continuous custodians of the land upon which the DIA National Office is located. We thank all continuing custodians of this land who share their wisdom and knowledge so that we may all have a better understanding of this place, now known as Australia. Adam Haddow is the Director of Architecture at SJB in Sydney. As a studio, SJB is acclaimed nationally and internationally for their work and their approach is that the activities buildings facilitate are just as important as the physicality of the buildings themselves. Adam believes buildings should subtly embody ambitions of beauty, delight, joy and surprise. Welcome, Adam. Thanks, Catherine. And where are you joining us from today? I am joining you from uh, my studio, our office in Surrey Hills. So I'm sitting on um, Gadigal land in the Eora Nation. Fabulous. Are there many people in the studio today? It's almost packed, actually. Oh, wow. So we have a flexible, flexible workplace policy, which means work where you want and when you want, pretty much. <laughs> uh, and so the interesting thing has been when we when we started lockdown, we had to move work remotely, obviously, so everyone flew the coop and went and worked from home. And pretty much as soon as we opened the office up again, everyone hoarded back in, So, uh, which is nice. I think people enjoy the culture of the practice and having the kind of camaraderie around. I think generally everybody's doing three days a week in the office and two days a week at home at the moment. And do you find that your team work in teams? So they sort of organise to come together on certain days and then pull apart uh, on other days? Yeah, look, we... Um, Kind of the way we're structured as an office, we are structured around teams, but we have a lot of smaller projects where it might only have one person really working on the on the project. Uh, what we do in that was we have partners so that so if someone goes away on holidays and, or someone's sick, the other person can pick up and help out. And if there's a tender coming up and you're really under the pressure, you can go to your buddy and they help you. So we have a lot of uh, pairings and we have a lot of teams in the office and people tend to self-organise their own little you know, organism about how the office works for them. And that's coming in and going home. And generally people come in when they need to be collaborative and generally they stay home when they need to be focused. So it's kind of, it's quite nice, actually. So when everyone comes in, they're all, it's all really chatty. It's like the first day back at primary school after you've had summer holidays. <laughs> everyone's so happy to be there. It's lovely, isn't it? Everyone's like, oh, what happened on the weekend? <laughs> you yeah, really appreciate nice. those moments now, don't you? Yeah, correct, correct. It's interesting because they've, we've got lots of COVID babies happening. We've got lots of engagements going on. We've got lots of dogs. We have a dog policy in the office, which is bring your dog in. So there's always something happening in the office. It's quite fun. That's fabulous. And what are you working on at the moment? Well, being a week before Christmas, I'm working on way too many things trying to get done all before Christmas, which is just like oh, a bit of chaos going on. But I'm doing a new house for myself, so that's taking up a little bit of time. So my husband and I are building a new house, which is fun. We're just trying to get finished off by the end of February, an adaptive reuse of a state heritage-listed church for philanthropic organization 
um, which that's happening. Um, we're just kicking off a new competition. We won for a hotel, for a 200-room ho- boutique hotel in the city, which is, again, super exciting. And I've got a couple of houses going on. I've got an office building. We've just finished lots going on. The display suite that has to be done by Christmas. Of course it has to be done by Christmas. Absolutely. Has to be done by Christmas. Yep. So that's going – that's like – that'll happen. It's just – I don't know how it's going to happen, but we've got six days to make it happen. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> And you all sort of collapse in a heap around the 23rd and think, how, what, what just happened? It well, feels like To be honest, I've got to get in the car and drive to my parents' place in country Victoria. So I'll collapse in a heap on about the 2nd, I think. We'll do, we'll do family Christmas. We'll get all that done, come back to Sydney, and then we'll collapse. <laughs> just got to hold on to it. It'll be all right. <laughs> I know that white-knuckling feeling. Yeah, <laughs> hold on. Like, yeah, no, it's fine. Just put all that excess Great. stuff in a cupboard. For my sins, I've just been finishing my parents. I designed a house for my parents. They moved into town from out of town. And uh, it's like 98% finished. So I'm sure when I go home over Christmas, it's just going to, I'm going to get hammered by the builder and my parents about how to fix this detail and what color do you want that wall and where is, why don't I don't have a GPO here? <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> Just got to extend my working year for another week or two, and I'll be all right. <laughs> do you find yourself picking up a paintbrush or a hammer? Can, do you get in there? Um, yeah, I do. I don't do it as often as I used to, just because I'm busy. And when I go home, I'm like, oh, please, just let me sleep. But um, no, no, I do. I was up. We've got a holiday house, and I was painting last weekend. It was nothing, like a little bit of detail trim around the window, around some mirrors. But you know, doing a bit of that, bit of fun. It's always nice to keep in touch, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm hopeless at it, by the way. I'm very much. I'm much happier to pay somebody to do it and come into the office and do some hours of work to pay for them to do it. They're always much better, quicker, better, higher quality. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> well, switching gears back towards your practice and your philosophy behind your practice, you talk about your approach as crafted modernism. Um, what does this mean to you, and how do you apply this thinking to your work? So I think if I step back to the kind of idea of beauty, delight and joy, that's something that we think that should exist in every project we do, this idea of beauty, delight and joy. And kind of in parallel to that, I was educated at Melbourne University. So uh, under Peter McIntyre was the Dean of Architecture at the time and then Haig Beck and Jackie Cooper. And so there was a very strong modernist idea about what architecture meant, which was fantastic. So I I'm a planner from heart. I like planning buildings. I like getting really organized dwelling plans or apartment plans or office building plans. I like them to be really geometrically simple. But I think one of the things that happened when modernism happened was we lost, we we kind of reduced everything down to its minimalist. Like it became very sleek. It became very pared back, which I, I love. But I think the thing I was missing in that thinking was the the craftsmanship of joy, seeing people put things together by their hands and and working with really amazing craftspeople who just absolutely love what they do, yeah? So we try to think about the idea of bringing modern, modernist principles about good efficient planning and good city making, but at the same time allow the idiosyncratic of localism. So we kind of call it localism, or we kind of term it as, well, we didn't term it, but localism as idea, like global knowledge, local initiatives and making sure that that comes together so that you still know you're in Sydney when you're in Sydney. The thing I hate the most is the fact that our city's skylines are starting to look the same and that our shopping strips look the same because they've got the same shops in Barcelona and Paris and London and Sydney and New York. 
um, I, you know, the places we love the most, I think, are the places we go to and think, oh, my gosh, I've never seen this before. I've never seen that shop or that detail and can't buy that somewhere else. So how do you get that kind of idiosyncrasy back into projects? So crafted modernism, how do you, you know, the, this idea of being a bit more hand felt. Mm. Is that, or do you have to do like the dirty C word and have to collaborate and like, how do you get that going at grassroots? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's just about being conscious of what's happening internationally, right? It would be like saying, you know, all of our health care initiatives are going to be Australian-based and we're going to forget about the fact that somebody in the UK developed a vaccine for COVID, you know. So it's saying, actually, no, we do acknowledge that there are amazing things happening globally and internationally and we learn from those and we we think, you know, thinking about carbon sequestration or uh, minimising carbon in our projects or using rammed earth or whatever, whatever it is that is really cutting edge or printing buildings, for example. So understanding that, but then making sure that it doesn't lose the idiosyncrasy of what place means and that um, we do connect it back to, you know, being in Sydney. I think that there's so much difference across the length of Australia that that uh, even the difference from being in Newcastle to Sydney to Wollongong to Albury-Wodonga to Ballarat to Bendigo to Melbourne to Warrnambool, I mean, all of those places are different and have their own, own idiosyncrasies and that the architecture of the place that the, the people are working in. And the architects I admire the most are the people who are very, in a good way, very parochial, like people who work very much where they live, you know, not jetting off on a plane. And it's kind of something that we've made an active decision about in the last couple of years to try not to do that. In my mind, the best projects are the ones I can walk to from my office. That's that's the ideal world. Like I never, if the, if the hardest thing is I have to get on a bus or a tram, that's fantastic. But as soon as I have to get on a plane, I'm like, mm, not so much. Let's not do that. That's really difficult. <laughs> that's also because it kills my like private time. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun for pleasure, not so much fun for work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we haven't flown around a lot of, um, recently on a plane. Ha- well, no, I'll dish that question. I'll just... <laughs> we can we can edit that one out. <laughs> I was like, no, no. We'll jump to the next one. <laughs> but you're obviously not scared of using colour and materiality in your work. And when we look at your home, the Cleveland rooftop, Colour is just used extensively throughout. How did you think about that and use colour in your work? What was your approach there? Um, I used to be really scared of colour, actually. I kind of, I think I used to work with people who made me scared of colour, who kind of berated me for not, not knowing colour. And actually, in the end, I've kind of realised that actually you shouldn't, shouldn't have to know colour. Colour is just life, you know, like you should just embrace it should embrace it with love and joy that color is a is the kind of thing that makes these idiosyncrasies and and what someone might see as a clash of color or something that they don't like actually other people completely love and enjoy so trying to be much more open and accepting of color as a kind of part of the process of designing and building i think is super important so you know when i did my own house that was probably the first time that i'd really got involved in just being me in the colour sense. <laughs> and, you know, when I said we were going to do a green kitchen, everyone was like, oh, my God, you are absolutely crazy. You should never do that. And I was like, oh, gosh, maybe I am crazy. Like, you know, but I did like 60 different panel colours just to check. You know. Anyway, we love it. It's kind of one of those things that you think it's going to be really dominant and you're going to see it every day. But 
as soon as you put it on the kitchen and you start living with it, you fail to see the colour and you start to see the connection. So in my place, the the green of the kitchen actually is to connect to the Boston ivy that's on the wall outside. So the, the interior and exterior just is contiguous. And that's what you read when you're in the house. You don't read the fact you have a green kitchen. You just read the fact that there is an interior exterior, which kind of crosses the glass line boundaries. I love the way that you um, described your home, that it's a, it's a home in a garden, mm-hmm. not a garden around a home. And you can really see that, you know, the colour and the materiality and the work and the, the sort of material textures and the connections that you make really also connect to the garden spaces. How important do you think those outdoor spaces are to your architecture? I think actually gardens are more important than architecture in a lot of ways. I think that actually the greatest luxury on earth is having a garden. I mean, obviously everyone needs to have shelter, but uh, being able to have a garden is, I think, the luxury above that before you get, you know, (laughs) before you spend too much on the building, spend it all in the garden. I'm always like, if I can choose a really great tree or a great tile, I'm going to choose the tree first and then I'll just, whatever money I've got left, I'll use for the tile. So, I do think gardens are really super critical there, there, particularly in Sydney because we live an outdoor lifestyle, really. It's probably a little bit different when I was growing up in country Victoria where it was freezing cold and it's a different type of relationship with the outdoors. But I think in Sydney, the relationship with the outdoors is direct. It's all the time. It's not like there are months where you don't go outside. It's like I wear a T-shirt pretty much every day of work, every day of the year, independent of what the weather's like just because you can. So the idea that the external environment is for me, it's actually much more important than the external, internal environment. Uh, I'd much prefer to be designing a really small house with a really big garden than a really big house with a really small garden. I think that's kind of – I think a lot of people with a lot of money get it very wrong. They think that a big house is important than a small garden. Like the biggest thing, the biggest luxury you can have in Sydney is having a big garden because, like, totally. that's the hardest thing to find. <laughs> <laughs> and a garden with a view, you know. Correct, a garden with a view is even better. <laughs> I thought the bath in the garden was just the finishing touch. Yeah. You had me then. Oh. <laughs> quite good. And people are like, oh, you mustn't use it. I was like, we use it all the time. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's nothing better than sitting in the uh, – well, I mean, we're high enough that, like, no one – not that I'd really care, but no one really looks on, yeah? You're amongst the trees and the birds and just having a bath on a weekend. It's really nice. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to tag onto that with trees. Like, mm. it didn't occur to me until very recently how luxurious having a tree is. Mm. Mm. So I lived in really small spaces for a long time and now we're in a house with trees. And the arborist came and he said, yeah, these are all weeds. I didn't even know <laughs> you trees that were weeds. I was like, <laughs> they're trees. A friend of mine said to me that a, a weed is just a plant in the wrong location. So I think... <laughs> They're actually fine. Trees, weeds, trees. As long as, you're, as long as you're not letting them flow onto your neighbours, I think it's okay. You know? Oh, the neighbours, we won't even get into that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should mention them. Um, <laughs> um, but moving through the questions, as an architect, you seem to work across many different scales from urban planning to small-scale hospitality, hospitality and interiors. How do you work across such a diverse range and scale of projects? You have amazing people you work with. I think the other thing is that when it's, the office is not me, like I'm just a person in the office, like the office is a, a group of 85 really super talented, dedicated people, you know, and lots of the projects I have very small, minor involvement in and vice versa, same with other people and other directors and other, other staff. But we have a very flat structure in the office, so 
everyone contributes. Everyone can take authorship and ownership over projects. Um, ultimately, that sits under the SJD banner, and that's kind of important for a whole lot of reasons to make people not overexpose people personally, but professionally, make sure that they're protected and nurtured and supported and, you know, that actually the project is by us collectively. But, you know, um, there's a, I have a student, a year 12 student who started working with us. He was in year nine. He started to do work experience with us and he is amazingly talented. Uh, and so when he finished, he finished high school and got into architecture school last year and during the pandemic, I said, why don't you just take a year and come and work with us for a year and then and go to uni, right? It's going to be a bad pandemic year. So let's sit out of uni for a year and go next year. So he's doing a house with us, like for a client of ours, which is great. He's amazing. So, I mean, I think that there's there's value you can get from a whole a diverse range of people. And it's just about acknowledging what they bring to the table and what where their strengths and weaknesses are and as an office. I mean, our goal is that we collectively as an office, we fill in people's weaknesses and by with support and we let their strengths kind of float to the surface and ideally that they can kind of do what they want to do. I mean, that's the ambition, that people do what they want to do and they'll be good at it. If you try to force people to do something that they're not good at, they're not going to stay very long. <laughs> they're not going to be very happy. And you can imagine, you know, just putting your hand up and saying, I want to do a house. And if you've got that flat structure, there's an opportunity there to really push yourself in certain directions without, you know, that hierarchical structure, which is so typical of a, you know, an architectural office in the past. It's important. I mean, it's a, it's a management thing of how, you know, experience and depth and you know, your personal history about what you've worked, what you've what you've been involved with before. Like there's a whole lot of things you can bring to the table and age doesn't necessarily mean you're good at those things. Uh, just like youth doesn't necessarily mean you're bad at them, you know. But, but you know, it is important that people are not, you don't want to throw them off the deep end either. You know, you don't want to just say, I'll oh, go and go and do this, here you go. Like float away and be stressed out by it. But you want to make sure that people are feeling supported. And so the balance in that, you know, it's like, it's like an elastic band. It doesn't you overstretch and it doesn't work and you understretch and it doesn't do anything at all. You've got to keep it stretched enough that it has that it has some flex in it and it's pulling back a little bit. So you want people to have a bit of that. I think people want to have a bit of that, actually, because if people don't have a bit of flex, they feel under undervalued or underused. And if they have too much stretch on them, they feel burnt out. So you've got to find that kind of moment where the elastic band's doing its job you know it's kind of being fulfilled so there's a there's a we spent we spent a lot of time on it we don't always get it right but it's an ongoing process it's one of those things where you have to check in with people regularly and make sure that they're feeling you know comfortable it leads it so beautifully into the next question that we had that you've commented that the success of your work is due to the skill of listening yeah i think so i mean um i'm always surprised that you know, when you go to a, a client meeting or a council meeting or any meeting, to be honest, you have to put yourself in there in that person's position that you're presenting to, because ultimately uh, you're there to try and either allay their fears or get them excited about what you're wanting to do or what you're proposing. Yeah, so you have to kind of think, well, what are these people going to be interested in, or what is this client interested in, or where can I, where do I find the thing that allows me to to get into what it is that they want to be doing. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of listening. There's also a lot of acknowledging skill and expertise. So, you know, listening, acknowledging that engineers are mostly really good at what they do and builders are really good at what they do and you need to kind of not tell them how to suck eggs. You need to kind of work with them to use their skill and 
help help I suppose help liberate yourself so that you can you can you they can you know in the same way that I, we want to as an office support people and find their strengths I want to make sure that with people we work with um, we liberate them they liberate us so that we can come to our strengths and they can fill in our weaknesses and vice versa that, that's that's super important but yeah listening to them we do a lot of workshops with clients or communities when we've got big jobs particularly when they're public jobs we're doing we're doing some schools at the moment so uh, schools are really hard because you have students and parents and teachers and the Department of Education and generally people in Department of Planning and local council people and the next door neighbour, everybody wants to be involved in the school. So we run a, a rapid consensus workshop where we, we prepare ideas and then present them in a single, in, uh, generally we like to do it in a day, it, sometimes it takes up to three days where we present ideas and then everyone goes, we present something in the morning, people go away for lunch, we work over lunch and then we present something back to them in the afternoon and then they go away for dinner and we present something back to them after they come back from dinner and we just keep going. And the, the intent is that nothing that we present really will end up being the school, it's just that through the process of trying these things, not only do you start to find the common ground amongst with the people you're working with, but you, they hear each other, so they know what each other's issues are. So normally, what where conflict occurs is because people haven't heard other people's ideas or opinions, and they feel like they're not being listened to. So if we can get everyone in the room and they can hear what's going on, they can start to mediate their own response so that they they kind of get the big picture of what's the what's the ambition, sets and boundaries, and and it's, you know it works quite well. It can um can be full on <laughs> can be pretty intense i would say because it sounds you know you're not even really just listening it's almost like a discourse you're giving yeah. and then receiving and um it is a real conversation between all parties which is you know such a fascinating process yeah it's fast and it's furious and after three days of doing it literally literally 24 hours for three days i'm exhausted <laughs> just get and usually there's like a group of five or six of us and i'll lead the sessions and everyone will be doing stuff in the background so well by the time we get to the end of it we're all absolutely exhausted but you get a lot of work done in a short period of time and you build consensus and then the project can step off on the right foot so it's yeah it can be quite good we don't do that for every project because that that's just it's too you know you don't you not, not all projects are that complex you know <laughs> This podcast was made with the support of Dulux. Head to dulux.com.au forward slash colours for your insider scoop on what's new, emerging and upcoming in the wild world of colour. Explore the 2022 Dulux colour forecast colour palettes to discover the trends set to influence colour and design for the coming year. And looking back into how, how you've come to be, you know, where you are, how did the Churchill Fellowship inform your work as an architect? So I, it's kind of a long story, but I started as uh, started working at SJB when I was a student in 1994, and then we, after I finished university, just stayed and was I was in the Melbourne office actually, and we did a competition for a project in Sydney and we won the competition and I was I was I moved I came to Sydney for three weeks. Uh, which turned into three months, just to hand it over to the project director who was up here, who had recently moved up and was running a project, and they were just going to take up the project, and I was going back to Melbourne. And it was in the middle of it was the middle of August, which was really crappy weather in Melbourne. And I remember arriving in Sydney; it was like a glorious Sydney day. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm not going back to Melbourne. This is amazing." 
Anyway, um, it's what, 22 years almost, 21 years later that I've been in Sydney and so I just kind of never left. And then um, I became a partner in 2002, I think, or three or something around that, so fairly early. And I said, when it was offered the partnership, I was like, I didn't really know what that meant, to be quite honest with you. I was just like, oh, that sounds good. Great. Let's do it. Um, But I did say I, I haven't done any travel, so in the first five years of being a partner, I want to take six months off, do some travel. Anyway, 10 years later, um, I hadn't done any of it. And I was, I was, my husband actually said to me, we both need a break. We've been working way too hard. Uh, so we took a gap year. And so as part of our, our grown up gap year, took a year out of work and I applied for a couple of fellowships or yeah, some, some fellowships. So I got the Churchill fellowship, which was really amazing. And that was uh, an opportunity just to spend some time and, travel and just understand a little bit more about what was happening globally in the area of medium density um, housing and high, and high density housing, just to see, could we do it better? I think I'd been, I'd been doing a project in Sydney and actually at a community consultation event I got spat on <laughs> and um, by a resident and I was like, okay, this is the low part of my career. This is not fun. So I was trying to work out it, you know, the, the, the densification issue, the challenges that we have as cities are not unique to us. This is kind of this idea back to global knowledge. Yeah? Everyone's dealing with it, the kind of mass urbanisation of the world, of the planet, and how do we manage the transition better? Because I didn't feel like we were managing it particularly well. And at the same time, we we're losing a lot of that idiosyncrasy by just demolishing things and building new things. So the Churchill Fellowship is amazing. Everybody should apply for a Churchill Fellowship. They're, they're, they're available to everybody. You can apply for them. They happen every year and you get up to, I think it's like $40,000 to go and study abroad. And it's not studying, it's your own directed study. You just identify people or things you want to go and engage with to learn. And so I identified about six different places around the world that I thought were doing really amazing things at an urban design level. So the the mayor of Bogota at the time, Enrique Peñalosa, was doing some really amazing work in Bogota around renewal and giving space back to the public as opposed to it becoming being private. Like he was liberating golf courses and turning them into parks and saying, actually, 3% of our population play golf and 97% of our population don't have enough green space, so let's reclaim the golf course and turn it into a park. So he was one interesting doing something. There was some stuff, uh, really interesting stuff happening in the UK, which I thought was interesting but architecturally not so fantastic, which was the Prince Charles initiatives around Poundbury, which is a new town he was making, which I thought was really interesting. I didn't necessarily appreciate the architecture, but actually when I went there, I'm like, this is actually quite fantastic. Was it nice? Uh, yeah, it was. It was quite sweet, actually. And I don't I say that kind of uh, cringe a little bit when I say that because it's kind of what we're not taught to do, but actually it was quite fabulous to be there. And there's a parallel version of that called New Urbans in the US, which does similar things but without the kind of twee architecture. And that has some successes and some failures. I think the uh, Prince Charles's initiative is quite good because it's quite dictatorial in a way. Like he can just do it. He doesn't have to consult with many people. Then there was some work in in kind of broader kind of continental Europe around competitions and the role of competitions and the way in which densification was happening and the very even-handed collaborative engagement discussion that was happening with with citizens. And I think a lot of that happens because 
for some of those cities, a lot of the cities were bombed during the war, so there's not a lot. There wasn't a lot of heritage fabric left, so kind of renewing was a little bit easier. And then you've got the kind of turbocharged situation in, in um, most of Asia, but particularly in Tokyo, about the fabulous mix of uses that they can do on a single site. So you can have a shopping centre and a primary school and a hospital and a residential apartment building all on top of each other, and they all happen to work. Whereas if you talk about putting anything on top of a school in Australia, it's like you need two heads, you know. You've got two heads and it should never happen and why are we doing this? So, yes, that's why I went, and it was um, a really amazing opportunity to see what was going on. It gave me a bit of perspective, a bit of time, and enabled me to come back and kind of read a little bit more about what was happening here. And do you think that that really, I mean, obviously it informed your practice post that point, but what were the profound um, sort of shifts that you found came in practice? I think the role of strict urban design, so the fact that uh, most architects actually, are, I think a lot of architects think they're good at urban design, but they're not actually good at urban design. They're good at buildings, and there's a difference between urban design and architecture. So I think that's a, that was a realisation. Um, Beyond that point, we brought on a specialist urban designer to become a partner because we kind of acknowledged that that was a really important skill to be able to think that far in the future. Like people think it takes a long time to build a building. It takes a lot longer to make a city. So how do you set the things in task and make them flexible enough to be able to be flexible? You know, like you want them to be defined enough that they set an agenda and have some structure and rigidity and geometry and clarity to it but you also want them to be flexible enough that when inevitably things change which they always do that they can adapt and change to those to those movements in society so you know that was a big thing uh that was a big thing for me and i think i learned personally a lot about it so i think i became a better designer through thinking about the urban realm and the fabric of the city rather than the jewel of the building so i, I like to think a lot of the work we do is about weaving a beautiful fabric and it's not about the brooch. I'm not, I'm not really into brooches of architecture. I'm much more into the kind of weaving of the fabric and it becoming part of every, you know, the everyday lives. It's lovely to have a brooch every now and then and design a brooch, but they, not every building should be a brooch because if, if they're all brooches, there's <laughs> too much going on in the world, man. It's chaos. It's chaotic enough. Correct. Correct. <laughs> It, I mean, it sounds just almost like a, re, a complete rethink or a change in perspective as to how you approach architecture and almost like what you've learned at architecture school, you sort of throw that out and you're actually learning a different skill set as you mature into the profession. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, I think it's probably less about throwing it out and more just about acknowledging the the fact that, you know, architecture school is really just like week one of your career. <laughs> and totally. So one, Hagebeck used to say to us that no architect will ever produce a good piece of architecture before the age of 50. And at the time, when I was at the architecture school, I was like, how stupid. Of course you can. And now I'm like, oh, my gosh, absolutely. I'm 48 and I don't think I've produced a good piece of architecture. You know, like I'm looking forward to being 50 and hopefully having enough knowledge about things to be able to manage and balance and bring together people and places and make something amazing you know so i think it's it's kind of just acknowledging the path and and the kind of learning that happens in the profession that you kind of need to do yeah and really it sort of goes back to that question you know what's your favorite project oh it's my next one because that's going to be yeah. you know the yeah. most exciting thing <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i mean i think you have favorite projects for a whole lot of different reasons sometimes it's because you think they're the brickwork detailing is beautiful or because 
the colour was great or something, right? Or uh, but most often actually you have favourite projects because of the people you worked on. It was a really great work environment. That builder was fantastic and it was the best experience I've ever. You know, like that kind of stuff. But you're right, architect. We're eternal optimists, and our best project is always tomorrow, which is quite. It's a nice way to live. <laughs> it can be a bit frustrating, but it's nice. <laughs> Very optimistic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, totally. And changing tack a little bit here, but you know, we we found in the research that you're involved in Champions of Change. Mm-hmm. How how did that come about, and how's that informed your practice? So we we really 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 believe in um, diversity in practice, diversity in business in the office. That our office should be as diverse as the communities we live in, if not more. Like we are educated professional people who are capable of understanding what diversity means uh, and accepting and being able to accept diversity a lot earlier maybe than other parts of this of society so we kind of feel like in that in that way we're a little bit of the canary in the mine that it's important for us to push push some stuff you know push some things i've been lucky that even like I, when I didn't come out as being gay until I was in my 30s so i was quite a late bloomer and most of that was probably self-imposed but i grew up in a small rural country town and although it was never explicit but there was never you never wanted to be different it didn't matter what you just let's not be different let's be as monochromatic and the same as everyone else possibly can and then when i started as a student there was a there was a strong acceptance by the partners about what diversity was and supporting diversity and, and that was over that was ethnicity that was age that was gender so it's it's kind of been a long-term thing and i think the s and the j and the b all um two of their families uh the four parents of the families uh, were all Holocaust survivors and had to kind of rebuild and come to Australia and, uh, you know, work out what how to fit in and what that meant. And so I think that there was a kind of strong position from the founding partners about this idea of acceptance and diversity. So then we, we in the Sydney office, have a strong – like if you're employing somebody or asking someone to come and be part of your team and be and work with you – you want the best thing to have is a different opinion. You're might not necessarily always going to agree with it, and sometimes that makes life a lot harder if people don't don't agree with me. How is that possible? But it's a very it's a, it's a really good thing to have. So I woke up. Well, it's not like it sounds like I just I just um, I just realised that there was gender inequity in the world, which I didn't. But you kind of do occasionally. There's moments where you think, how did this happen? Like I was a a young gay man. Who was non? Who was not religious? Working in a Jewish firm, in in Sydney, in one of the most diverse cities in the world, and I looked around and everybody was like me, and I was like, you know, white guy. Like, how does that happen? Like, all most of my friends at university were women, or women and or of diverse uh, ethnic backgrounds, and I'm like, how did we all end up being white and now middle aged? How did that happen? So. It was kind of like you have to make an active decision about how changing that. Like you can't just roll on. And it's not fair to accept the people who are in the position of adversity or being exclusion. People people who are excluded by their very nature can't change the position they're in because they're being excluded from it. So as a person who is included and as a, as a kind of middle-aged white man, I am the most included in the world so it's kind of a role to make sure that you create the opportunity the platform for people to be included who are normally excluded Uh, and so that's um that's that's women that's how we got involved in the champions of change and that was something that the institute of architects 
were promoting as a as a kind of avenue and we were one of the 10 practices who got involved early to say let's do something about this collectively because you're not going to change it by yourself you're only going to change it by getting everybody's mind thinking about it and i think it is important to not you know you can beat yourself up sometimes about the gender diversity in your own business but actually if you work with other people it's it shouldn't be about that it should be about how it's a gender diversity happening across all our businesses because you don't want to pilfer people you know i could go out and steal all the all the leading female architects and bring them into the practice right but all that does is create a hole somewhere else you know so you don't want to you, you kind of want to make sure that you support people create opportunities when that opportunity does arrive in your business that if somebody puts their hand up and says, I want to do it, that you are open to that and you create the opportunity. And that's about, for us, it's a lot more about building the groundswell from inside the practice and making making sure there's no barriers, uh, like blind spots that we have that we don't even acknowledge that exist, that, that exist um, to make sure that doesn't happen. So as an example, when we were quite a small practice, we have a, we had a very open policy about uh, parental leave, for example. It's like, just let's have a conversation, we'll sort something out. No problems. But as you get bigger, we didn't update, we didn't have a policy. So people didn't think we had a policy. It's like we have a policy, our policy is whatever works for you. But you can't actually do that because people don't know about it, right? So now we have a we have a gender neutral policy around carers leave. It's the same amount of time for uh, for a primary and secondary carer. We don't care what gender you are, we don't care how old you are, uh, we don't care whether you're adopting or fostering or having your having your children by birth so it's just a really fair and equal scenario to have in place and that was something that was developed in consultation with everyone in the office and that was something that we all felt really strongly about that it was not gender based but we also have initiatives so we're a partner with career trackers and we're a partner with career seekers um, so career trackers was actually started both of them were started by my husband but um, career trackers is works with aboriginal and Torres Strait islanders to create opportunities for People, uh, you know, first Australians to be involved in architecture. There's woefully small number of architects who are first Australians. Same thing with asylum seekers and refugees to make sure that that their experience internationally can come and have an opportunity to test itself and be open for it here. And it's and it's not necessarily about providing everybody a job. It's about providing everyone with the experience. So when they go to their next job interview, they can say, yes, I've worked in Australia and this is who my referee is. I know some people. And you start to help them create networks. So, yeah, so we think, you know, diversity is, you know, super, super important. It's amazing. And, I mean, to be so self-aware as a, as a practice too is quite extraordinary. And I know, you know, speaking as a female architect, to see um, a pathway and to see like a female director and know that there is a pathway yeah. for me means so much. So to create so much diversity in a practice is quite extraordinary. Yeah, and it's not it's not easy. It's not it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, now we are gender equal in our business across all of our levels, except for our partnership level. Our partnership we have four men, right? <laughs> and we kind of acknowledge that that's not going to ha- that's not going to change overnight. Partnership agreements and ownership structures uh, take a long time to happen. And you know, I've been at SJB for twenty seven or twenty eight years. I've been a partner for twenty four of those years. I like to think I'm going to change the directorship from four to eight over the ne- over a very short period of time and have four men and four women is just it's just not realistic, yeah. But we do we we have committed to have gender. Our aim is for gender equality across the entire business, inclusive of directors by 2025. So we've got four years to go, and that's kind of acknowledging that 
uh, we probably we need to grow that partnership number. We need there will be some people who will retire in that period of time that you need to be cognizant of that. You need to have a long-term plan about onboarding and offboarding and what is the role of we have a forced retirement age if you're a partner of 65 and that sound that used to sound like it was really old and now i'm like oh my gosh that's like not that very far away um but you kind of then what's the role of people who, if you can't own shares in the business after the age of 65 which i think is a really good initiative you can still be involved in the business and you you know you may Maybe you're an emeritus owner that you still, you know, you'll use your knowledge that you've gained over years to give back to the practice and in a way that's good. But, you know, I think it's just being cognizant of all of that and you get it wrong. We get it wrong. We definitely get it wrong and we stuff things up. But uh, as long as we're cognizant of it and we can learn from the mistakes about, you know, why someone leaves who we think has got an amazing potential with us, why are they leaving and what did we do wrong and how can we learn from that and can we – change it next time because you don't want to make the same mistake twice that kills me when we do that <laughs> uh, but i think as a practice you know sjb when they started you know was, was such a signature practice three amazing directors and to see that then evolve and the directors sort of uh, gradually step away i think there's one original director as part of the practice still yes um, yep. Yeah, and to see this sort of reinvention of a practice that was so established is so exciting as well and the continued evolution perhaps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you have to decide too as a practice, are you, are you a single generation practice or a multi-generation practice? And I mean, the benefit for me is that I, that as a, a personal benefit, is that, I, that my name's not on the business, yeah? So the, so, because then it can be a lot more equal, like no one has to talk to the, you know, <laughs> People used to, because because the SJB is quite well known in Melbourne as Simon Justin Bialik. They know Michael Charles and Alan. Everyone knows Michael Charles and Alan. But when we came to Sydney, no one knew who Michael Charles and Alan were. And we, and I remember this might be a bit harsh. Charles will probably kill me. But um, I remember when I was in a meeting once, and I was very young. And one of the people said, "Oh, what does the SJB stand for?" I said, "Oh, those three old guys. They're dead now." <laughs> and they were just that. And like in a way, it was like the easiest move because. Then no one had to meet the SJ and the B, and therefore anybody in the practice could have a level of authority. It didn't really matter. That was quite clear, yeah? And, you know, Mike, to their credit, Michael Charles and Alan wanted that to happen. They didn't want to be the people driving the practice forever. They wanted to make sure it was multi-generational and it created – I mean, in the end, the thing that is their most greatest level of generosity they've ever had is by creating an opportunity for me to be a partner, yeah? I mean, I was more country town boy with – no connections whatsoever like you know so to have that opportunity to become a partner the important thing for me is to make sure there's that opportunity for other people to become partners and take that and and you know reach their potential or at least have the opportunity to reach their potential and that we take you know we take the barriers away from it's amazing vision to start a practice and then to essentially hand the practice over it's yeah, it's hard. I must mm. say, it's a hard thing to do. It's not. It's not hard as in because it's your child. A lot of ways, yeah. like it also becomes part of your personality. Like, uh, you know, you kind of can't. I can't. I've been here long. I've been in a partner of the practice longer in the town I grew up in, and that scares the bejesus out of me because I, I, you know, from my point of view, I'm from Ararat. That's my. That's where I live in inverted commas. It's my home, and yet I've lived in Sydney longer than that. I've been a partner at SJB longer than that, and there's a it's hard, it's hard to think about how you do it, but I think it's it's hard when you think of it all happening at once. If you think about it just 
elastic band. Let's stretch it out, Adam, and let's let it return back on itself. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier, like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Let's keep going. It'll be all right. <laughs> I'm definitely taking the elastic band analogy with me. That's a great one. <laughs> and thank you so much for your time. We just have one more question, you know, circling back to that idea of beauty, delight, joy, and surprise. What is your favourite colour or Dulux colour? And, and oh your gosh. white. I have no favourite colour. I reckon I have this. I have the Atlas, the colour of Atlas. Yeah, and I, I literally, I have it sitting behind. You can probably see it on my desk behind me. I have it behind me in the shelf. I literally every project is a different colour, and we play with a different colour. But I, can I tell you the section that I love the most? I love the New Zealand colours. I know that's bizarre, but they're the most beautiful colours. So when I go to my, here we go, my fan deck, when I go to my fan deck, my thing that is always closest is the ones that the New Zealand colours, and I flick through them, I always go to the New Zealand ones first and think, oh, is there something in there I like? Look at that orange, that fantastic colour. Anyway, they're, they're, it's it's kind of, uh, I always find it challenging to remember the colour too, because I'm horrendous at writing things down. So as a consequence of that, I don't really have a favourite colour because I forget what it is. It's like, that. remember that green I painted my kitchen? What colour was that green? I have no idea. Uh, I'm sure I could find it if I really had to. But, yeah, no, I, I think the wonderful thing about colour is it's so much related to your sense of person and joy and what, what week day of the week it is and what time of the year it is. And so, it, for me, it changes a lot. Like, I'll be into – our office is in painted entirely in pinks. So maroons through to pinks. Every surface is a maroon or a pink. And six years ago, every surface was green. So, you know, it's like we switch it up. It's paint. Paint's cheap. It's fantastic. You can change your life with a, with a tin of paint. It's great. It's incredible, isn't it? It's the cheapest tool in town. <laughs> Correct. Correct. We love it. We love it. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for joining us. It's been so many gold nuggets, I have to say, in our short conversation. So. <laughs> That's lovely chatting to you, Renee and Catherine. I really appreciate it.